If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me this evening and taken the time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Chapters 13 and 14 of Emily of New Moon by L. M. Montgomery. In the last chapter, Emily made a new friend of Tommy who lives on the hill. In these chapters, Emily has a fright with a poisoned apple and receives a new furry friend. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take one big, deep breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most relaxed. And now all you need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful, Night sleep. Chapter Thirteen A Daughter of Eve. New Moon was noted for its apples, and on that first autumn of Emily's life there, both the old and the new orchards bore a bumper crop. In the new were the titled and pedigreed apples, and in the old, the seedlings, unknown to catalogues, that yet had a flavour wildly sweet and all their own. There was no taboo on any apple and Emily was free to eat all she wanted of each and every kind, the only prohibition being that she must not take any to bed with her. Aunt Elizabeth, very properly, did not want her bed messed up with apple seeds, and Aunt Laura had a horror of anyone eating apples in the dark, lest they might eat an apple worm into the bargain. Emily, therefore, should have been able to fully satisfy her appetite for apples at home. But there is a certain odd kink in human nature, by reason of which the flavour of the apples belonging to somebody else is always vastly superior to our own, as the crafty serpent of Eden very well knew. Emily, like most people, possessed this kink and consequently thought that nowhere were there such delicious apples 
as those belonging to Lofty John. He was in the habit of keeping a long row of apples on one of the beams in his workshop, and it was understood that she and Isla might help themselves freely when they visited that charming, dusty, shaving-carpeted spot. Three varieties of Lofty John's apples were their especial favourites. The scabby apples, that looked rather sorry for themselves, but were of unsurpassed deliciousness under their queerly blotched skins. The little red apples, scarcely bigger than a crab, deep crimson all over and glossy as satin, that had such a sweet, nutty flavour and the big green sweet apples that children usually thought the best of all. Emily considered that day wasted, whose long-descending sun had not beheld her munching one of Lofty John's big green sweets. In the back of her mind, Emily knew quite well that she should not be going to Lofty John's at all. To be sure, She had never been forbidden to go, simply because it had never occurred to her aunts that an inmate of New Moon could so forget the beloved old family feud between the houses of Murray and Sullivan, belonging two generations back. It was an inheritance that any proper Murray would live up to as a matter of course. But when Emily was off with that wild little Ishmaelite of an Isla, traditions lost their power under the allurement of Lofty John's red and scabs. She wandered rather lonesomely into his workshop one September evening at twilight. She had been alone since she came from school. Her aunts and cousin Jimmy had gone to Shrewsbury, promising to be back by sunset. Isla was also away, her father, prodded thereto by Mrs. Sims, having taken her to Charlottestown to get a winter coat. Emily liked being alone very well at first. She felt quite important over being in charge of New Moon. She ate the supper Aunt Laura had left on the cookhouse dresser for her, and she went into the dairy and skimmed six lovely big pans of milk. She had no business at all to do this, but she had always hankered to do it, and this was too good a chance to be missed. She did it beautifully, and nobody ever knew, each aunt supposing the other had done it, and so she was never scolded for it. This does not point any particular moral, of course. In a proper yarn, Emily should either have been found out and punished for disobedience, or been driven by an uneasy conscience to confess. But I am sorry, or ought to be, to have to state that Emily's conscience never worried her about the matter at all. Still, she was doomed to suffer enough that night from an entirely different cause, to balance all her little peccadilloes. By the time the cream was skimmed and poured into the big stone crock and well stirred, Emily didn't forget that either. It was after sunset 
and still nobody had come home. Emily didn't like the idea of going alone into the big, dusky, echoing house, so she hied her to Lofty John's shop, which she found unoccupied, though the plane halted midway on a board indicated that Lofty John had been working there quite recently and would probably return. Emily sat down on a round section of a huge log and looked around to see what she could get to eat. There was a row of reds and scabs clean across the side of the shop, but no sweet among them, and Emily felt that what she needed just then was a sweet and nothing else. Then she spied one, a huge one, the biggest sweet Emily had ever seen, all by itself on one of the steps of the stair leading up to the loft. She climbed up, possessed herself of it, and ate it out of hand. She was gnawing happily at the core when Lofty John came in. He nodded to her with a seemingly careless glance around. Just been in to get my supper, he said. The wife's away, so I had to get it myself. He fell to planing in silence. Emily sat on the stairs, counting the seeds in the big suite. You told your fortunes by the seeds, listening to the wind woman whistling elfishly through a knothole in the loft, and composing a description of Lofty John's carpenter shop by lantern light, to be written later on a letter bill. She was lost in a mental hunt for an accurate phrase to picture the absurd, elongated shadow of Lofty John's nose on the opposite wall when Lofty John whirled about so suddenly that the shadow of his nose shot upwards like a huge spear in the ceiling and demanded in a startled voice, What's become of that big sweet apple that was on that stair? Why, I, I ate it, stammered Emily. Lofty John dropped his plane, threw up his hands, and looked at Emily with a horrified face. The saints preserve us, child. Ye never ate that apple. Don't tell me you've gotten at that apple. Yes, I did, said Emily, uncomfortably. I didn't think it was any harm. I... Harm? Listen to her, will you? That apple was poisoned for the rats. They've been plaguing my life out here, and I had my mind to make up to finish their fun. And now you've ate the apple. It would kill a dozen of you in a brace of shakes. Lofty John saw a white face and a gingham apron flash through the workshop and out into the dark. Emily's first wild impulse was to get home at once, before she dropped dead. She tore across the field through the bush and the garden and dashed into the house. It was still silent and dark, 
Nobody was home yet. Emily gave a bitter little shriek of despair. When they came, they would find her stiff and cold, black in the face likely. Everything in this dear world ended for her forever, all because she had eaten an apple which she thought she was perfectly welcome to eat. It wasn't fair. She didn't want to die. But she must. She only hoped desperately that someone would come before she was dead. It would be so terrible to die there, all alone in that great, big, empty new moon. She dared not try to go anywhere for help. It was too dark now, and she would likely drop dead on the way. To die out there, alone, in the dark. Oh, that would be too dreadful. It did not occur to her that anything could be done for her. She thought if you once swallowed poison, that was the end of you. With hands shaking in panic, she got a candle lighted. It wasn't quite so bad then. You could face things in the light. And Emily, pale, terrified, alone, was already deciding that this must be faced bravely. She must not shame the stars and the Murrays. She clenched her cold hands and tried to stop trembling. How long would it be before she died, she wondered. Lofty John had said the apple would kill her in a brace of shakes. What did that mean? How long was a brace of shakes? Would it hurt her to die? She had a vague idea that poison did hurt you awfully. Oh, and just a little while ago she had been so happy. She had thought she was going to live years and write great poems and be famous like Mrs. Hemis. She had a fight with Isla the night before, and hadn't made up with her yet. Never could she make it up now. And Isla would feel so terribly. She must write her a note and forgive her. Was there time for that much? Oh, how cold her hands were. Perhaps that meant she was dying already. She had heard or read that your hands turned cold when you were dying. She wondered if her face was turning black. She grasped her candle and hurried up the stairs to the spare room. There was a looking glass there. The only one in the house hung low enough for her to see her reflection in, if she tipped the bottom of it back. Ordinarily, Emily would have been frightened to death at the mere thought of going into that spare room by dim, flickering candlelight. But the one great terror had swallowed up all the lesser ones. She looked at her reflection, amid the sleek, black flow of hair, in the upward-striking light on the dark background of the shadowy room. Oh, she was pale as the dead already. Yes, that was a dying face. There could be no doubt about it. Something rose up in Emily 
and took possession of her, some inheritance from the good old stock behind her. She ceased to tremble. She accepted her fate, with bitter regret, but calmly. I don't want to die, but since I have to, I'll die as becomes a Murray, she said. She had read a similar sentence in a book, and it came pat to the moment. And now she must hurry. That letter to Isla must be written. Emily went to Aunt Elizabeth's room first, to assure herself that her right-hand top bureau drawer was quite tidy. Then she flitted up the garret stairs to her dormer corner. The great place was full of lurking, pouncing shadows that crowded about the little island of faint candlelight, but they had no terrors for Emily now. And to think I was feeling so bad today because my petticoat was bunchy, she thought, as she got one of her dear letter bills, the last she would ever write on. There was no need to write to father. She would see him soon. But Isla must have her letter. Dear, loving, jolly, hot-tempered Isla, who, just the day before, had shrieked insulting epithets after her and who would be haunted by remorse all her life. Dear Isla, wrote Emily, her hand shaking a little, but her lips firmly set. I'm going to die. I have been poisoned by an apple Lofty John had put for rats. I will never see you again, but I am writing this to tell you I love you and you are not to feel bad because you called me a skunk and a bloodthirsty mink yesterday. I forgive you, so do not worry over it, and I am sorry I told you that you were beneath contempt because I didn't mean a word of it. I leave you all my share of the broken dishes in our playhouse, and please tell Teddy goodbye for me. He will never be able to teach me how to put worms on a fish hook now. I promised him I would learn, because I did not want him to think I was a coward. But I am glad I did not, for I know what the worms feel like now. I do not feel sick yet, but I don't know what the symptoms of poisoning are, and Lofty John said there was enough to kill a dozen of me, so I can't have long to live. If Aunt Elizabeth is willing, you can have my necklace of Phoenician beads. It is the only valuable possession I have. Don't let anybody do anything to Lofty John, because he did not mean to poison me, and it was all my own fault for being so greedy. Perhaps people will think he did it on purpose, because I am a Protestant, but I feel sure he did not and please tell him not to be haunted by remorse. I think I feel a pain in my stomach now, so I guess that the end draws nigh. Farewell, and remember her who dies so young. Your own devoted, Emily. As Emily folded up her letter bill, 
she heard the sound of wheels in the yard below. A moment later, Elizabeth and Laura Murray were confronted in the kitchen by a tragic-faced little creature grasping a guttering candle in one hand and a red letter bill in the other. Emily, what is the matter? cried Aunt Laura. I'm dying, said Emily solemnly. I ate an apple Lofty John had poisoned for rats. I've only a few minutes to live, Aunt Laura. Laura Murray dropped down on the black bench with her hands on her heart. Elizabeth turned as pale as Emily herself. Emily, is this some play-acting of yours? she demanded sternly. No, cried Emily, quite indignantly. It's the truth. Do you suppose a dying person would be play-acting? And oh, Aunt Elizabeth, please will you give this letter to Isla, and please forgive me for being naughty, though I wasn't always naughty when you thought I was, and don't let anyone see me after I'm dead if I turn black, especially Rhoda Stewart. By this time, Aunt Elizabeth was herself again. How long ago is it since you ate that apple, Emily? About an hour. If you'd eaten a poison apple an hour ago, you'd be dead or sick by now. Oh, cried Emily, transformed in a second. A wild, sweet hope sprang up in her heart. Was there a chance for her after all? Then she added despairingly, but I felt another pain in my stomach just as I came downstairs. Laura, said Aunt Elizabeth, take this child out to the cookhouse and give her a good dose of mustard and water at once. It will do no harm and may do some good if there's anything in this yarn of hers. I'm going down to the doctor's. He may be back but I'll see Lofty John on the way. Aunt Elizabeth went out, and Aunt Elizabeth went out very quickly. If it had been anyone else, it might have been said she ran. As for Emily, well, Aunt Laura gave her that emptic in short order, and two minutes later, Emily had no doubt at all that she was dying then and there and the sooner the better. When Aunt Elizabeth returned, Emily was lying on the sofa in the kitchen, as white as the pillow under her head, and as limp as a faded lily. Wasn't the doctor home? cried Aunt Laura desperately. I don't know. There's no need of the doctor. I didn't think there was from the first. It was just one of Lofty John's jokes. He thought he'd give Emily a fright, just for fun. His idea of fun. March you off to bed, Miss Emily. You deserve all you've got for going over there to Lofty John's at all, and I don't pity you a particle. I haven't had such a turn for years. I did have a pain in my stomach, wailed Emily 
in whom fright and mustard and water combined, had temporarily extinguished all spirit. Anyone who eats apples from dawn to dark must expect a few pains in her stomach. You won't have any more tonight. I reckon the mustard will remedy that. Take your candle and go. Well, said Emily, getting unsteadily to her feet. I hate that dog-gasted lofty John. Emily, said both aunts together. He deserves it, said Emily vindictively. Oh, Emily, that dreadful word you used. Aunt Laura seemed curiously upset about something. Why, what's the matter with Dodd-Gasted, said Emily, quite mystified. Cousin Jimmy used it often, when things vexed him. He used it today. He said that dod-gasted heifer had broken out of the graveyard pasture again. Emily, said Aunt Elizabeth, with the air of one impaling herself on the easiest horn of a dilemma. Your cousin Jimmy is a man, and men sometimes use expressions in the heat of anger, that are not proper for little girls. But what is the matter with Dodgasted? persisted Emily. It isn't a swear word, is it? And if it isn't, why can't I say it? It isn't a... a ladylike word, said Aunt Laura. Well then, I won't use it any more, said Emily resignedly. But Lofty John is dodd-gasted. Aunt Laura laughed so much after Emily had gone upstairs that Aunt Elizabeth told her a woman of her age should have more sense. Elizabeth, you know it was funny, protested Laura. Emily being safely out of sight, Elizabeth permitted herself a somewhat grim smile. I told Lofty John a few plain truths. He'll not go telling children they're poisoned again in a hurry. I left him fairly dancing with rage. Worn out, Emily fell asleep as soon as she was in bed, but an hour later she awakened. Aunt Elizabeth had not yet come to bed, so the blind was still up, and Emily saw a dear, friendly star winking down at her. Far away, the sea moaned alluringly. Oh, it was nice just to be alone and to be alive. Life tasted good to her again. Tasted like more, as Cousin Jimmy said. She could have a chance to write more letter bills and poetry. Emily already saw a yard of verses entitled The Thoughts of One Doomed to Sudden Death and play with Isla and Teddy, scour the barns with saucy sal, watch Aunt Laura skim cream in the dairy and help Cousin Jimmy garden, read books in Emily's bower and trot along the Today Road but not visit Lofty John's workshop. 
she determined that she would never have anything to do with Lofty John again after his diabolical cruelty. She felt so indignant with him for frightening her, after they had been such good friends too, that she could not go to sleep until she had composed an account of her death by poison, of Lofty John being tried for her murder and condemned to death, and of being hanged on a gibbet as lofty as himself. Emily being present at the dreadful scene, in spite of the fact that she was dead by his act. When she had finally cut him down and buried him with a bloquy, the tears streaming down her face out of sympathy for Mrs. Lofty John, she forgave him. Very likely he was not dodd after all. She wrote it all down on a letter bill in the garret the next day. Chapter 14 Fancy Fed In October, Cousin Jimmy began to boil the pig's potatoes, unromantic name for a most romantic occupation, or so it appeared to Emily, whose love of the beautiful and picturesque was satisfied as it had never yet been on those long, cool, starry twilights of the waning years at New Moon. There was a clump of spruce trees in a corner of the old orchard, and under them an immense iron pot was hung over a circle of large stones. A pot so big that an ox could have been comfortably stewed in it. Emily thought it must have come down from the days of fairy tales and been some giant's porridge pot. But Cousin Jimmy told her that it was only a hundred years old, and old Hugh Murray had had it sent out from England. We've used it ever since to boil the potatoes for the new moon pigs, he said. Blair water folks think it old-fashioned. They've all got boiler houses now, with built-in boilers. But as long as Elizabeth's boss at new moon, we'll use it. Emily was sure no built-in boiler could have the charm of the big pot. She helped Cousin Jimmy fill it full of potatoes after she came from school. Then, when supper was over, Cousin Jimmy lighted the fire under it and puttered about it all the evening. Sometimes he poked the fire. Emily loved that part of the performance sending glorious streams of rosy sparks upwards into the darkness. Sometimes he stirred the potatoes with a long pole, looking, with his queer, forked grey beard and belted jumper, just like some old gnome or troll of Northland stories mixing the contents of a magical cauldron. And sometimes, he sat beside Emily on the grey granite boulder near the pot and recited his poetry for her. Emily liked this best of all, for Cousin Jimmy's poetry was surprisingly good, at least in spots, and Cousin Jimmy had fit audience though few in this slender little maiden with her pale, eager face and rapt eyes. 
They were an odd couple, and they were perfectly happy together. Blairwater people thought Cousin Jimmy a failure and a mental weakling, but he dwelt in an ideal world of which none of them knew anything. He had recited his poems a hundred times thus as he boiled the pig's potatoes. The ghosts of a score of autumns haunted the clump of spruces for him. He was an odd, ridiculous figure enough, bent and wrinkled and unkempt, gesticulating awkwardly as he recited. But it was his hour. He was no longer simple Jimmy Murray, but a prince in his own realm. For a little while, he was strong and young and splendid and beautiful, accredited master of song to a listening, enraptured world. None of his prosperous, sensible Blairwater neighbours ever lived through such an hour. He would not have exchanged places with one of them. Emily listened to him, felt vaguely that if it had not been for that unlucky push in the new moon well, this queer little man beside her might have stood in the presence of kings. But Elizabeth had pushed him into the new moon well, and as a consequence, he boiled pig's potatoes and recited to Emily. Emily, who wrote poetry too, and loved these evenings so much that she could not sleep after she went to bed until she had composed a minute description of them. The flash came almost every evening over something or other. The wind woman swooped or purred in the tossing boughs above them. Emily had never been so near to seeing her. The sharp air was full of the pleasant tang of the burning spruce cones Cousin Jimmy shoveled under the pot. Emily's furry kitten, Mike too, frisked and scampered about like a small, charming demon of the night. The fire glowed with beautiful redness and a lure through the gloom. There were nice whispering sounds everywhere. The great big dark lay spread around them, full of mysteries that daylight never revealed, and over all, a purple sky powdered with stars. Isla and Teddy came too, on some evenings. Emily always knew when Teddy was coming, for when he reached the old orchard, he whistled his call, the one he used just for her. A funny, dear little call like three clear bird notes, the first just medium pitch, the second higher, the third dropping away into lowness and sweetness, long drawn out, like the echoes in the bugle song that went clearer and further in their dying. That call always had an odd effect on Emily. It seemed to her that it fairly drew the heart out of her body, and she had to follow it. She thought Teddy could have whistled her clear across the world with those three magic notes. Whenever she heard it, she ran quickly through the orchard and told Teddy whether Cousin Jimmy wanted him or not. 
because it was only on certain nights that Cousin Jimmy wanted anybody but her. He would never recite his poetry to Isla or Teddy, but he told them fairy stories and tales about the old dead-and-gone Murrays in the pond graveyard that were as queer, sometimes, as the fairy stories. And Isla would recite too, doing better there than she ever did anywhere else. And sometimes, Teddy lay sprawled out on the ground beside the big pot, and drew pictures by the light of the fire. Pictures of Cousin Jimmy stirring the potatoes, pictures of Isla and Emily dancing hand and hand around it like two small witches, pictures of Mike's cunning little whiskered face peering around the old boulder, pictures of weird, vague faces crowding in the darkness outside their enchanted circle. They had very wonderful evenings there, those four children. Oh. Don't you like the world at night, Isla? Emily once said rapturously. Isla glanced happily around her. Poor little neglected Isla, who found in Emily's companionship what she had hungered for all her short life, and who was, even now, being led by love into something of her rightful heritage. Yes, she said and I always believe there is a God when I'm here like this. Then the potatoes were done, and Cousin Jimmy gave each of them one before he mixed in the bran. They broke them into pieces on plates of birch bark, sprinkled them with salt which Emily had cached in a small box under the roots of the biggest spruce, and ate them with gusto. No banquet of gods was ever as delicious as those potatoes. Then finally came Aunt Laura's kind, silvery voice calling through the frosty dark. Isla and Teddy scampered homewards, and Emily captured Mike too, and shut him up safely for the night in the new moon doghouse, which had held no dogs for years, but was still carefully preserved and whitewashed every spring. Emily's heart would have broken if anything had happened to Mike too. Old Kelly, the tin peddler, had given him to her. Old Kelly had come round through Blairwater every fortnight from May to November for thirty years, perched on the seat of a bright red peddler's wagon, and behind a dusty, ambling, red pony of that particular gait and appearance pertaining to the ponies of country peddlers. A certain placid, unhasting leanness, as of a nag that has encountered troubles of his own and has lived them down by sheer patience and staying power. From the bright red wagon proceeded a certain metallic rumbling and clinking as it bowled along, and two huge nests of tin pans on its flat, rope-encircled roof flashed back the sunlight so dazzlingly that old Kelly seemed the beaming sun of a little planetary system 
all his own. A new broom, sticking up aggressively at each of the four corners, gave the wagon a resemblance to a triumphal chariot. Emily hankered secretly for a ride on old Kelly's wagon. She thought it must be very delightful. Old Kelly and she were great friends. She liked his red, clean-shaven face under his plug hat, his nice, twinkling blue eyes, his brush of upstanding, sandy hair, and his comical, pursed-up mouth, the shape of which was partly due to nature and partly too much whistling. He always had a little three-cornered paper bag of lemon drops for her, or a candy stick of many colours, which she smuggled into her pocket when Aunt Elizabeth wasn't looking. And he never forgot to tell her that he supposed she'd soon be thinking of getting married, for old Kelly thought that the surest way to please a female creature of any age was to tease her about getting married. One day, instead of candy, he produced a plump grey kitten from the back drawer of his wagon and told her it was for her. Emily received the gift rapturously, but after old Kelly had rattled and clattered away, Aunt Elizabeth told her they did not want any more cats at New Moon. Oh, please let me keep it, Aunt Elizabeth. Emily begged. It won't be a bit of bother to you. I have had experience in bringing up cats, and I'm so lonesome for a kitten. Saucy Sal is getting so wild running with the barn cats that I can't associate with her like I used to do, and she never was nice to cuddle. Please, Aunt Elizabeth. Aunt Elizabeth would not did not please. She was in a very bad humour that day anyhow. Nobody knew just why. In such a mood, she was entirely unreasonable. She would not listen to anybody. Laura and Cousin Jimmy had to hold their tongues, and Cousin Jimmy was so bidden to take the grey kitten down to Blairwater and drown it. Emily burst into tears over this cruel command, and this aggravated Aunt Elizabeth still further. She was so cross that Cousin Jimmy dared not smuggle the kitten up to the barn as he had at first planned to do. Take that beast down to the pond and throw it in, and come back and tell me you've done it, said Aunt Elizabeth angrily. I mean to be obeyed. New Moon is not going to be made a dumping ground for old Jock Kelly's superfluous cats. Cousin Jimmy did as he was told, and Emily would not eat any dinner. After dinner, she stole mournfully away through the old orchard, down the pasture to the pond. Just why she went, she could not have told, but she felt that she must go. When she reached the bank of the little creek where Lofty John's brook ran into Blairwater, she heard piteous shrieks, and there, marooned on a tiny islet of sere marsh grass in the creek, 
was an unhappy little beast. Its soaked fur plastered against its sides, shivering and trembling in the wind of the sharp autumnal day. The old oak bag in which Cousin Jimmy had imprisoned it was floating out into the pond. Emily did not stop to think, or look for a board, or count the consequences. She plunged into the creek up to her knees. She waded out to the clamp of grass and caught the kitten up. She was so hot with indignation that she did not feel the cold of the water or the chill of the wind as she ran back up to New Moon. A suffering or tortured animal always fills her with such a surge of sympathy that it lifted her clean out of herself. She burst into the cookhouse where Aunt Elizabeth was frying doughnuts. Aunt Elizabeth, she cried, the kitten wasn't drowned after all, and I am going to keep it. You're not, said Aunt Elizabeth. Emily looked her aunt in the face. Again, she felt that odd sensation that had come when Aunt Elizabeth brought the scissors to cut her hair. Aunt Elizabeth, this poor little kitten is cold and starving, and oh, so miserable. It has been suffering for hours. It shall not be drowned again. Archibald Murray's look was on her face, and Archibald Murray's tone was in her voice. This happened only when the depths of her being were stirred by some peculiarly poignant emotion. Just now, she was in an agony of pity and anger. When Elizabeth Murray saw her father looking at her out of Emily's little white face, she surrendered without a struggle. Rage at herself as she might afterwards for her weakness. It was her one vulnerable point. The thing might not have been so uncanny if Emily had resembled the Murrays. But to see the Murray look suddenly superimposed like a mask over alien features was such a shock to her nerves that she could not stand up against it. A ghost from the grave could not have cowed her more speedily. She turned her back on Emily in the silence, but Emily knew that she had won her second victory. The grey kitten stayed at New Moon and waxed fat and lovable, and Aunt Elizabeth never took the slightest notice of its existence, save to sweep it out of the house when Emily was not about. But it was weeks before Emily was really forgiven, and she felt uncomfortable enough over it. Aunt Elizabeth could be a not ungenerous conqueror, but she was very disagreeable in defeat. It was really just as well that Emily could not summon the Murray look at will.